to the Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. That's a lot of years. It is. I'm Carrie, and even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, holy moly, we could not be more different. I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, borderline antisocial, a lover of socks with cuss words on them, and terrified when Amy says she has an idea because that usually spells trouble. Or... It, it spells genius because I have <laughs> darn good ideas. Uh, and I'm Amy. I want to be your new best friend, especially if you're a book lover and maybe even if you're not, but the odds are decidedly lower. I'm also a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict, and I treat a good yard sale like it's a national treasure. Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other and sometimes a special guest about books. Each week we chat about what we're reading as well as other bookish things such as authors in the news recent book to film adaptations weird stuff we've googled while reading and our tbr count we're so glad you've joined us we were honored to welcome andy hunter the ceo of bookshop.org to the podcast this week andy is a writer a publisher and now heads up a company that competes with amazon for online book sales but unlike Amazon, the proceeds of bookshop.org sales go back to independent bookstores. At the click of a button, you can order a book to be delivered while your favorite independent bookseller gets part of that sale. Independent bookstores that sell most of their books during the summer or don't have the capacity to ship books can create a bookshop.org page and sell books to anyone at any time. Authors, schools, and book influencers can create pages too. We talk with Andy about why he started this endeavor a few months before COVID hit, why he loves Coney Island, and how his degree in philosophy has affected the types of books he gravitates to. Oh, and as of this recording, we decided to get with the times. The Perks is a bookshop affiliate, and you can see any of the books that we talk about on the show on our new bookshop page, and you can order them from there. But first... We went to see a movie today. We just got back. Yes, we went to see the Barbie movie. I didn't really want to go see Barbie because I have kind of mixed feelings about Barbie, but all the reviews have been so great that I decided that I needed to see it and you kind of wanted to see it. So we I saw did. it together. I, I think I'm going to need like a couple days to let it sort of marinate in my brain because it was strange, wonderfully strange, but surreal a little bit. Uh, but yes. I, I felt like there was a lot there that is interesting to think on. I don't know. Were you, did you play with Barbies a lot when you were a kid? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I had the Barbie dream house. Oh man. I did. I got it for oh. Christmas one year. Oh. Well, one of my friends had the townhouse and I was really jealous of her. But yes, I was very much a Barbie girl. Wow. But my daughter, I don't know about your daughter, but my daughter didn't ever really like playing with Barbies. She oh, liked no. playing with the baby dolls. So Nora, you remember, they weren't Barbies per se, but they were Disney princesses Barbies. Uh -huh. She got big into those. Big into those. When she was probably three, we bought her, a, it was like a Disney princess Barbie house. And so it looked like a castle and it was right. pink and, and she had that. So she had every Disney princess that you could possibly have at that time in Barbie form. So we played a lot of Barbies. A lot okay. of Barbies. Well, what about you? Did you play with Barbies? You know, I, I remember my cousin had a Barbie dream house and I was always very envious and I remember begging my parents, you know, please, I want a Barbie dream house. And I had the apartment. Mm. Um, it was probably a knockoff. My parents were very frugal, but maybe not. I don't remember. I think my mom says I didn't play with them a whole lot, but I played with them enough that I was very envious of my cousin. And, and also a little bit just now of you when you said that you had a Barbie dream house. <laughs> I'm like, Really? With the furniture. The furniture oh, was the best part, oh, man. Oh, my gosh. So when I think of Barbie, I think of like this desire to have a Barbie dream house. Oh. But I remember playing, you know, at friends' houses and playing Barbies. And I was always kind of intrigued. 
Yeah, you know, now that you say that, it does make me think a little bit of as a little girl wanting things that maybe I couldn't have, mm-hmm. right? Like I wanted all the different outfits and mm-hmm. I wanted all the different things that you could buy for Barbie, right. like the you know, the beach house and the pool and the sports car. It, I guess that's why I have some mixed feelings about Barbie. Not even just like, it also as a little girl makes you want to grow up to have a body like Barbie and mm. virtually nobody does unless you're Margot Robbie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what I did like about this movie is it sort of turns that on its head. Something that I have always thought of. I mean, I didn't think about this at the time, but as an adult, I thought, you know, I'm not sure that Barbies are really <laughs> such a such a healthy toy, you know, yeah. especially for young girls. And I kind of like the way that it subverted that. Yeah. And and as we were talking about the furniture in the dream house, the sets that they built for this were pretty oh. amazing. The furniture looked like that plasticized furniture that you w- would buy for your Barbie houses. and it was great. Yeah. It was a really weird, fun movie. But like I said, I think there's a lot also the deeper stuff, but I think you're sort of like overwhelmed by how campy it is mm. that that I think I'll be thinking about it for a couple of days. Like, okay, what did I take from this? Yeah. I had on the way home from the movie, I was thinking about it. Like, what did I think of that movie? It was but funny. It, like it, it made me it laugh was a funny. lot. But one of the things I also loved about this is that not all the women in Barbie land look like Margot Robbie. Mm -hmm. They were all different sizes. They were all different shades, you know, uh, skin color, ethnicity. And so I love that they made it very inclusive in that way. Yeah. So we also collaborated on something else not too long ago. This past week, an episode where we are guests aired The podcast is Thrillers by the Book Club podcast. And yeah, they had us on as guests uh, to talk about thrillers uh, and about our podcast. And it was fun. And as I was listening back to it, I thought, (laughs) oh, I maybe shouldn't have said that about Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) I said, you're only a little bit horrible. I meant that very tongue in cheek. I did not mean that you were horrible. Well, it's true. It's true. You're I mean, not horrible. I'm well, you're right. I'm only a little bit horrible. <laughs> I, I mean, it's funny, but it's also totally true. It's funny because it's true. So one of the hosts, Chelsea Hoffman, had been on our podcast, I think last year sometime. Thrillers by the Book Club is a book club that has branches all over the country. And I think there's some overseas even. And they recently started a podcast, like I think three or four months ago. So anyway, that was fun to be on. You should look it up on your podcast player. It's called, the the episode is called Murder Ensues. Which they got from you because that's what you (laughs) said about the book you talked about, which was a Patricia Highsmith book. Yep, Strangers on a Train. Right. All right. Well, Amy, you have been dying dying i know i am very excited to share this i know we recorded next week's episode which is a book recommendation episode two nights ago and sometimes we have a segment called love and hate and i was excited to talk about this on the love and hate but we ran out of time and i didn't get to talk about it and i'm really upset because it is a very time sensitive thing the thing that i love And so I need to talk about it now because we have a little bit extra time here. Please, please do get it off your chest. I know. Carrie's like, whatever. But the thing that I am loving right now is, well, seasonal produce in general, specifically tomatoes. And there is a sandwich that my family loves that I found last year from Smitten Kitchen. That is a, a food blog. And she has several cookbooks, but it's called a tomato and provolone sandwich. And there's not really a recipe to it, but I'm going to tell you what you do. Now, the thing is, this is why it's time sensitive. You have to have really juicy, seasonal, ripe tomatoes in order for it to be at its best because you want it to be a little bit juicy, loosey, right? 
And you take two pieces of bread, whatever kind of bread you want, and you put a little mayonnaise on both sides, and then you sprinkle a little salt and a little pepper on one side. You slice your tomato and put however much tomato you want on it, and then you get a nonstick skillet, and you put some oil in there, a little bit of oil, and you heat it up like medium heat. You want it to be kind of hot. Then you take sliced provolone, and you put a slice of provolone in there, and it will start to look kind of lacy it'll start to kind of melt and get all lacy and eventually it's going to look a little brown and you're going to turn it over and cook it just another minute or two take it off the eye and put that cheese which is now kind of chewy onto your sandwich and there you go your tomato and fried provolone sandwich it is really juicy the cheese fried like that gives it that umami taste that tastes a little bit like there's meat in it so this is actually a perfect sandwich for somebody who's a vegetarian who kind of misses a BLT. I'm not promising it tastes like bacon, but it has like that umami taste. Anyway, that is what I'm loving. I made them all summer long last year and I kind of had forgotten about them this year. And then one night I didn't have any food in the house except for some bread and a ripe tomato. And I happened to have some provolone and I made it and I'm like, oh my God, why have I not been making this like all summer long? So we've had about four of them in the last week. Now, Carrie has tried it. She was not a fan, but I made the mistake too the first time I did it. If your heat is too low, your cheese doesn't melt right and it gets kind of globby. And I wonder if that's what the problem was. Was your cheese globby? I don't remember. I tried it once and I was like, this is kind of messy. And I don't love tomatoes. Oh, well that's, if you don't like tomatoes, you're not going to, yeah, you're not going to love it because it is about the juicy summer tomato. Yeah. That is the, that's the star really yeah. of, of the show. So anyway, that is the thing that I am loving right now. So if you have some summer tomatoes, try out my sandwich and tell me what you thought. I guess it's not my sandwich. It's Smitten Kitchen's sandwich, <laughs> but I am, I am singing its praises. I'm its disciple spreading the word. There Very you go. good. Uh, Transition that, Amy. Transition I know. I from the tomato. Uh, from the tomato. Well, you know what? You can never get good tomatoes from Amazon. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Amazon can never give you good tomatoes. <laughs> True and that. So, but there are things that you can order from bookshop.org that are just as juicy. Ooh. So <laughs> let, let's talk with Andy. Our guest today is Andy Hunter, CEO of Bookshop. We were very excited when we talked about having you on because Bookshop is is something that we've talked about on our show. So we're very excited to get the lowdown from you. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me on. So tell our listeners who may not know what Bookshop.org actually is. The simplest way to describe it is that we're a online bookstore that supports independent bookstores, local independent bookstores, and we help them compete against Amazon for online sales. Well, so I became aware of you when some of the local independent bookstores in our area, maybe who were small, didn't have the capacity to do their own online sales during COVID would have the bookshop tag on their websites and you could go and buy books through there. So when exactly did bookshop start? Was it long before COVID? No, we launched six weeks before COVID. Oh my um, so it was very, very good timing really kind of incredible. And it's it's funny because I was worried about Amazon. Amazon was growing like 8% year over year. I was in publishing. I was publishing books and I watched as Amazon was 15% of the market, then 25% of the market, then all the way up to 50% of the market. So one out of every two books were sold by Amazon. And I was really worried about what would happen to the independent local bookstores that I love and that I felt were like a really important part of the culture around books. And so I thought we got to build this platform as soon as possible because Amazon is going to like eat their lunch. It's going to be impossible for them to survive if this growth keeps happening. So I very urgently raised money and tried to launch it as quick as possible. We built it in seven months and it turned out like we were just in time because when we launched, it had bugs. It wasn't perfect. We had six weeks to fix those bugs. And then suddenly COVID hit in mid-March 2020 and all these bookstores 
that used to think like selling online was something they'd get around to, or it was optional, or wasn't something they cared about. Suddenly, it was like the only way for them to stay in business. And so we onboarded over a thousand bookstores in like six weeks. I read an interview that you did where you said when you were trying to pitch this idea, it was sort of like Star Wars and the Death Star. Like, you know, the odds of you succeeding were very, very low, but you had to try anyway. So talk about that a little bit. Like, how did you pitch it, the idea to um, other business people to get on board? Yeah, well, honestly, I probably didn't do a very good job of pitching it because everybody kept saying no, that generally people would say, you can't compete with Amazon. Competing with Amazon is not a business plan, is what somebody told me. And another person told me, American consumers care about two things. They care about price and they care about speed. And if can you beat Amazon on price? No, not really. Can you beat Amazon on speed? No, I don't think so. Then you're doomed. And but I knew that wasn't true, right? Because I also know that like people pay more for organic groceries and people understand the importance of like supporting the businesses in their communities. And people love going into bookstores, especially people that love books, like the audience for Bookshop is the kind of person that understands how important bookstores are and how they're more than just a store. They're like a community hub for people who love to read and it's where authors come to town and it's they work with schools and businesses in their communities and they're kind of like advocates and activists for the importance of books in our culture like every day they do so many things book clubs reading things for kids etc so there are people out there in the book world who will buy books from independent bookstores if it's just as easy as buying from amazon and they might be willing to wait another day or pay 50 cents more for a book it and they're going to do that for the same reason they like I pay for clean energy for my house because I'm concerned about global warming. So I pay a little extra every month to make sure that my energy comes from clean energy sources. And a lot of people do. So that was my case. At the time, I was saying we wanted to capture 1% of Amazon sales, which wasn't super ambitious, but uh, you know, it was still not going to be easy. And yeah, most people turned me down. And the people that did end up investing are people who just love bookstores and were willing to take a risk. And I don't think any of them expected Bookshop to be as big as it is. Did you hit the 1%? Yeah, we hit the 1% in like the first four months. Of course, the pandemic powered a lot of that, right? Because stores weren't able to open. They they you know they were on lockdown. They couldn't even have their employees come and, and ship out orders if they, if they wanted to. So it was quite easy for us to hit the 1%. We exceeded 1% right away. We're, we're at over 1% right now, but now, of course, like before, my goal was 1%. Now that we've hit 1%, I'm like, what about 5%? Wouldn't 5% be amazing? <laughs> 5% would really, like, really change the game for bookstores. So I'm curious, you know, you, you implemented this pretty quickly. So we always, you know, ask authors when we're talking to them, like, you know, you might have had an idea for a book, but then the reality of the book might look a lot different. So are there things about bookshop.org where you kind of envision one thing, but you had to adjust when it came to the reality of it? And what were those things? Yeah, well, I've had to scale back, but it's all stuff that we're going to add eventually. But I want there to be more discussions. I want authors to be able to do Q&As. You know, a lot of authors go on to Reddit to do a Q&A um, and ask me anything, or they go on Goodreads to talk to their fans. I want authors to be able to talk to their fans on Bookshop. I want reading groups to be able to discuss books. Um, so I want there to be more social elements mm -hmm. where our users actually can go there and feel like they're at home and we know who they are, they know who we are, and that they feel good about themselves. Every time you buy a book on Bookshop, we tell you how much of that profit is going to support independent bookstores. I, I want to have like a lifetime value. Like I've, I've given like $1,000 to bookstores from my purchases and make people feel good about that, give them little awards or perks, that kind of thing. There's a lot of stuff that we need to build onto it to for it to really have that kind of cultural feeling. Like I want it to feel sort of like a bookstore where you go into a bookstore, they know who you are. They know what kind of books you like. They're able to have a personal connection with you that 
a place like Amazon would never have. So that's what I want to go towards, which we're not quite at yet. But we're we're like halfway there. You do get a lot of personality of bookstores there on bookshop.org because they're all creating recommendation lists and lists of their favorite books and best summer reads and all of that stuff. And there's tons of stores on there and podcasts like yours and just cultural, influential people, authors, and they are all making book recommendations. So there is some social element right now, but I want there to be more. Well, Bookshop is a benefit corporation, a B Corps, and you've said that the goal is to keep bookstores healthy, and Bookshop is, in fact, partners with the American Booksellers Association. Can you talk a little bit about this symbiotic relationship that you have with them? Yeah. I mean, the the, the idea originally, I went into the American Booksellers Association and pitched the idea of Bookshop because I wanted it to exist. I was publishing books at the time, and one of our books was a Reese Witherspoon pick. And I saw Reese Witherspoon post it on Instagram and sold, you know, 25,000 copies of the book that day. But Reese was using uh, Amazon links because there was no way to link to something that would support independent bookstores. And that killed me. And I realized like, the New York Times links to Amazon, all of these different publications and websites and authors, they're all linking to Amazon because that was the only place to link to. There was no good way to sell books that you could link to that would support local independent bookstores. So that was my first idea. And I went to the ABA and I talked to them about it and I talked to them how it would work. And eventually they were like, it's a great idea. We don't think we can do it as a trade organization, but if you do it, we'll invest in it. And so that's when I decided to create it as its own company and did it in partnership with them. Yeah, and I know you have a background in publishing, but I'm thinking of the technology part of it. My husband's a software engineer, and yeah. I'm just thinking about the infrastructure that you need to launch this. So did you have any background in that so that you kind of felt like if you yeah. might know books, but do you know the technology piece? I, I did. It was it's another lucky break, like how these things have all aligned. Makes me believe in fate a little bit more than I used to believe in it. But when I was in my late 20s, I got a temp job at Disney, $12 an hour. And I was assisting the director of technology. And it was right before Y2K, the Y2K bug, which everyone thought was going to destroy the the world. And (laughs) I was sitting in a cubicle and the guy sitting next to me was a software contractor and he's making $125 an hour fixing the Y2K bug. And I'm like, I should learn how to do what he's doing. And so I went to Barnes and Noble and I bought a bunch of programming books and I learned how to code. And within six months, I was doing software development for Disney. And then I went on to do a bunch of B2B or business to consumer products and distribution software, like backend stuff for Disney and also for MGM in in, um, Los Angeles. And the whole time I was self-publishing a little magazine, I was writing fiction and essays and things like that. Like programming wasn't something I cared about or really wanted to do with my life, but I was good at it. And it gave me some kind of financial stability. I did that for about three years. And then I got a job as editor-in-chief of a magazine. So I left it behind. And for a long time, I was like, well, those were kind of lost years. Like, isn't that weird that I was eventually a manager at Disney doing like IT stuff. But then literally almost 20 years later, I had all the fundamentals to be able to figure out how Bookshop would work. And I don't think I could have done it without that. Wow. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) How it just kind of came around full circle that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I probably wouldn't have thought that I was capable of doing Bookshop if I hadn't built similar things. And of course, the whole tech world has changed a lot since then, but the fundamental principles are kind of similar. And I understood how books were distributed and sold because I was a publisher. So I understood that part of the business too. And I also knew a lot of people in the industry. So I was able to like reach out to people at Penguin Random House and say, hey, I've got this idea. Will you support it? I was able to reach out to the Authors Guild. Like, I knew them because I was publishing books. So that was also extremely helpful. Well, and as far as the technology piece, you have a history of that with the website Electric Literature and things like that. So you really were right at the forefront of connecting technology with books. Yeah, that's right. In 
2009, that's when I started my first company. It's a nonprofit, um, literary nonprofit called Electric Literature. And at that time, I had just gotten out of my MFA. I got an MFA at Brooklyn College. And I couldn't help but notice that everybody was so scared of technology in the literary world and that they felt like ebooks were going to com- take over the world and destroy the market for books. They thought YouTube and Twitter and video games were all going to destroy everyone's attention spans and there would be absolutely like no readers of books. And Philip Roth said, in 20 years, there will be no readers for the novel. And that was 2009. So 2029, we're coming up. We'll see if <laughs> Philip Roth was right. Uh, I felt like, well, it's true. Like there are all these threats with technology, but at the same time, there's huge opportunities for reaching people and really at scale and in a way that somebody with no resources could never have done before. Like before to reach millions of people, you mm-hmm. needed millions of dollars. Now with technology, there are ways that you can reach a million people with 30 bucks. And right. so if we don't try to use these platforms to fight for the relevance of literary content and books in popular culture, we don't build options for people who care about reading to be able to engage with it online as the cultural conversation moved online, then literature and books are going to be left behind. So I'm like, we should use all these tools. And instead of conceding them to people who don't care about books, let's use them to, first of all, fight for books and and also give people who love books a way to contact each other and build community and all that. And so the book culture can thrive on the internet and then it's not a threat anymore. It's actually a booster. And so that was Electric Literature's idea. And for a while there, we had like more Twitter followers than any publishing house. Like we had like three times as many Twitter followers as Penguin Random House did in in 2010. It has calmed down since, but because we were the only optimistic voice in the room, a lot of people jumped on to us and we were publishing eBooks. We would publish audio of all of our content and we would do animations. And so we had a YouTube channel. We'd serialized a stor- short story by Rick Moody on Twitter. Every opportunity we had to take like a new platform or new technology and kind of experiment with how can writing and serious literary authors like engage with this platform and do well on it and build community on it, we would try. And so that was really fun and, and interesting. And it also opened up a lot of doors for me because it was successful. Like when I started Electric Lit, I didn't know a soul in the in like New York publishing world. So it was a great introduction. Several <clears throat> years ago, we interviewed a, a college professor. I think his expertise was in 19th century literature. And he talked about how when novels first came out, that people were terrified of the novel because yeah. it, was, it was so different from anything. And they thought, you know, that it's going to change everything and nobody's going to read newspapers and nobody's going to read serials. And they were just terrified of it, which once he told me that it sort of changed my viewpoint on, you know, whenever I hear people kind of get freaked out about technology, you know, yeah. and, and where things are going to go. And I think, okay, well, the novel was really terrifying at one time. That's that's exactly right. And it's funny, I have a similar experience when I was reading Dante and he was talking about Florence and how it was going downhill and Florence was never going to be the same. It was just going <laughs> to like fall apart. And that the whole world was so much worse than it was when he was younger. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, everybody thinks this every year. Like the world never comes to an end. And Certainly, like with books, it's the same way. Well, I think there are some people who, you know, might see the CEO of your title and write you off as a a business guy and and not a book guy as if you can't be both. But for better or for worse, books are business. So I, I think there's some tension between, you know, the fact that we love stories, we love books. But there's also the money-making aspect of book selling, which, again, we've talked to a lot of authors and they might love the writing part, but then there's the, the publishing and the marketing and sort of the, the business part. So is there a tension there or is that just uh, not real, you know, oh, in your no. experience? Do you, do you see that as well? I, I think there definitely is a tension and there's a definitely a tension in me. I've got 450 pages of a novel sitting somewhere, which I don't have time to work on anymore. I was definitely attracted to books because I love the content. I love the art and 
narrative and experimentation and the history of it and all of that. And then what I came to realize also is I'm good at building things and, and innovating and figuring out like how to make things more sustainable. And, and that's actually really, really necessary. There are so many great projects and presses that kind of fall apart because they find it difficult to make it the business side work. So because I'm pretty good at that stuff, I've ended up doing mostly that stuff. And sometimes I do regret the fact that 95% of my time is spent on the business and marketing and growth side of things and only about 5% on the creative side. But I do think it's really necessary that that we try to build sustainable systems that support the culture that that we care about, right? And when we were la- launching Bookshop, that was sort of my thought in the end was like, well, I w- waited five years for somebody to build something like this, somebody that was smarter than me, knew more than me about this kind of thing, knew about e-commerce or whatever, and, and nobody ever built it. It doesn't look like they're ever going to build it. So I guess I'll build it. And that's kind of been my attitude about all the business stuff. Like, I'll just do it. Somebody has to do it. I don't know who else would do it, so I'll do it. <laughs> and then the other tension is, well, you might love a book and feel like this book deserves a huge audience. And then you see the books that are getting huge audiences, and sometimes you're not crazy about those. And and that is also like a business versus art or whatever you want to call it, tension. And I feel that tension when I see publishers decide if they're going to promote a book based on how many Twitter followers an author mm-hmm. has or how many Instagram followers an author has. I want it to be about, is the book good? And how good is the book? That should be the determination of whether a publishing house puts a lot of energy behind an author, but social media profiles matter. Well, people who are really good at social media might not be the best writers and people who are great writers might not be good at social media. And that's a constant tension these days. Yes. <laughs> so heartedly agree with all that. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the type of groups that can be bookshop affiliate. Carrie is involved with a group called Literary Mama, and they have a a bookshop affiliate. So, is there a a limit to who or what can become an affiliate? Yeah, I mean, no, there is no limit. Anybody can be an affiliate. So, we, we really encourage authors to be affiliates because they can curate their own homepage on Bookshop and list all their books. And they can also list like their favorite books when they were kids or the books that influenced their books or books by friends of theirs who are authors too. So every affiliate gets to create their own bookstore and they can put all the books they love. Like a chef could create a bookshop page. And if they've written some cookbooks, they could have their cookbooks on there, but they could also have their favorite cookbooks or the cookbooks that they consider essentials. And so there's really no limit. We have Pan America that's fighting book bans and doing activism on behalf of writers worldwide. And they've got a really robust page on Bookshop and they use Bookshop links for all their content on their site. And we have, of course, now I think almost 1900 bookstores on our site and they all have their pages. And we have influencers, book talkers, all that kind of people too. They're all in the mix. And we welcome it. It's like a big tent. And they're all stakeholders in the culture around books, right? So we want them there because we want Bookshop to feel like a buzzing hive of book-loving activity from all the different stakeholders in literary culture. So if if you care about books, if you have some relationship to books, you're a children's librarian, you're a romance author, what have you, you can create a Bookshop page. You can create lists. We'll feature your lists on different pages on this site. Like anytime we see a great list, we'd love to feature it and show it to more people. People can discover your content through Google too. We make sure everything is like optimized for search engines. So if you do my favorite graphic novels of 2023, like you might end up getting some people from California or Arkansas who just were searching for best graphic novels and they found your bookshop page. So it's really dynamic and fun, and I think it's great. Now, the only limitation there is that a bookstore has special privileges. So an affiliate gets paid 10% of us every sale. And the reason for that is we also put 10% into a profit-sharing pool, which goes to all the bookstores. Whereas if you're a bookstore, you get the full profit from the sale. So Bookshop doesn't even take a, anything. We don't take a cut. It ends up being about 30% off of, of 
every book sold, if you're a bookstore, you get to keep that money. And you also get customer information. So if you're a normal affiliate, you don't get to get the email addresses of people that bought books because we're protecting their privacy. But if you're a bookstore, we consider those are your customers. So you get to have their emails. If they've opted into marketing emails, then you can start emailing them and build a direct relationship with those customers. So the customer data and the higher commissions are exclusive for bookstores, but everything else any affiliate can participate with. If there's, say, an organization that has an affiliate page, they're not a bookshop, but they designate their local bookshop that also has an affiliate page, then that local bookshop can really benefit in two ways. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, you, okay. can, you can definitely say, like, I want my all my commissions to go to a certain bookstore, or you can also say, I want all my commissions to go to the profit sharing pool. You can also create a registry, which is you know something people have used Amazon for years to create these book registries. Well, you can create a registry and you can spe- specify a certain bookstore to get the profits from that registry. Okay. I love all that. I've been active on Instagram, Bookstagram for a little while. And you know sometimes I will post questions on there like, what is your favorite local bookshop? And I'm always amazed about how many people say, well, I don't really have you know, a local independent bookstore. And what I love about this is that people who don't have a local bookstore can still buy from somebody else's local bookstore, even if it's not their own. You know, if they don't want to buy from Amazon, but they don't really have any bookstores near them, this is a a great way to benefit those bookstores. Yeah. You know, one, one thing I think is really cool about it is that we have a map and sometimes people will just like browse the map and find like, What's the bookstore that's in the furthest northern reaches of Alaska? I'm going to support that bookstore. you know. Or what bookstore is on an island off the coast of Virginia? I'm supporting that bookstore. And you can kind of learn about all these different bookstores all over the country just by browsing the map and clicking in on them. And then we also have people that summer in Nantucket. And then they go back to Minnesota during the winter and they don't have a local bookstore. So they keep buying from their Nantucket bookstore. And because one of the secrets about bookshop is that we do all the fulfillment. So we don't make the bookstores actually pack and ship the books. We do that ourselves for them, which means that it's really easy for a bookstore in Nantucket to get people to support them all year round. Even if like shipping books to people in California would be tricky in the middle of winter in Nantucket, they don't have to worry about it because we ship the books for them. So their customers can support them all the time. I have one question, and that is, what about self-published authors? Do you all do anything with self-published authors? Yeah, there's a ton of self-published authors on the site. And there's two ways that you can get on the site if you're a self-published author. You can use Ingram Spark. Any book published by Ingram Spark, we will automatically list, and it'll be on Bookshop. Or if you're using KDP, which is Amazon's self-publishing platform, you can click to enable um, expanded distribution. And if you select expanded distribution from KDP, your book will be listed on Bookshop too. And we are working on eBooks. And when we launch eBooks, which should be hopefully in about eight months, those will be available as well for self-published authors through places like draft to digital which are great platforms for self-published eBook authors. I'm so excited y'all are getting ebooks because Amazon has really sort of cornered the <laughs> the market on that, I feel like. Uh, I mean, I know that there are some other providers, but as someone who doesn't like to use Amazon, I do still sometimes get Kindle books off of there, you know, because it's easy. Yeah. And there hasn't been like a really great alternative uh, to that. So I'm I'm really glad to to hear that. And I think it's great that authors can get on Bookshop and have their own little shop. I, I didn't realize that. And that's that's amazing. That's great. Yeah, we we believe in like sharing the wealth and like there's like the winner take all model, which is kind of Amazon's model where I don't know how people understand how aggressive Amazon is. But when I was a publisher, every single year, Amazon's terms would get worse. Every single year, they would squeeze us a little bit more. And that wasn't just us. It was everybody in the publishing industry like loses a percent or half a percent every year. And they're trying to dominate the market. They make books half price, like a big popular new book, they'll cut the price in half. Well, they're paying the publisher half of the price, which means there's no way they're making money off of selling that book. They're actually losing money, but they're doing that to gain market share. So they want to 
take all the book buyers by doing these super deep discounts. And so it's a winner take all model and Amazon is the winner. Bookshop is like the opposite. We're like an everyone share all model. If, if an author comes on the bookshop and lists their books, if we sell one of their books, they get paid for their book. Like they would get paid by from a normal bookstore, but they also get a 10% commission to kind of reward them for supporting local bookstores. And then a, local bookstores get a matching 10% commission as well from that sale. So 10% of the sale goes to the author, 10% goes to local bookstores. And then the remaining profit from the order, which is an additional 10%, that goes to bookshop to keep us going and help us make payroll and all of that. And we're we're just barely slightly over break even. So like last year, our profit was about $300,000, which we, of course, just put in the bank to so that we've got some rainy day money. But basically, most years we give 75 to 80% of the profit to local independent bookstores, and the rest of it goes to our payroll and infrastructure. And um, up till today, we've, we've raised $27 million for local bookstores in wow. just about three years. Ah, Kudos to you. Amazing. Amazing job. That's great. (laughs) So I did want to ask you about MFA in creative writing. You talked a little bit about writing yourself and having this 450 page novel that's kind of stuck in a drawer somewhere because you don't have time to work on it. How does that background help you in the in publishing and now in bookshop? Well, I mean, it keeps me grounded because because I'm doing it really to support the culture that I love and keep it alive. Like I want books to be relevant. Now that I've got kids, I want bookstores and books to be part of their lives forever. Like I feel like there is a bit of a danger of technology that the books are going to become less and less relevant and each generation is going to read a little less. And And I don't want that to happen partially because books saved my life. Like when I was a kid, books were so important to me and gave me a kind of connection and understanding to other people and made me understand my place in the world and made me want to live. I want that to be possible for other people and I'm afraid of it diminishing. So I want to fight for books. If somebody saves your life, you have a debt to them and books save my life and I have a debt to them. So I want to fight for them. And I think we all have to fight for them. And and part of that is understanding we're on an, we're in an ecosystem. It's not every man for himself. We are in an ecosystem, and we need to support the ecosystem. And if we all want to make books like matter in a hundred years, and so that's all because at heart, like I'm a writer and I want to create books myself. And the other thing I'd say about it is that it's all productive procrastination. I never would have started a business in the first place if I wasn't procrastinating writing my novel. <laughs> So the, the the one lesson I have from that is don't play video games. <laughs> Start a business instead. Like channel channel your procrastination into real world accomplishments. So you're saying there is hope for my 19 year old is yes. what you're saying. Yep. <laughs> so I want to know real quick, what is your reading wheelhouse? So, you know, are there certain genres that you were just super attracted to, or I know Amy loves haunted house books, you know, or an animal sidekick. So what's your real house? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely like a literary fiction guy, but like, I I love Dostoevsky and Flannery O'Connor and people like that in my twenties. I think literary fiction with a slight existentialist bent was really important to me and probably still is um, like Sam Beckett and James Baldwin and books that have storytelling and character, but also that are about trying to better understand the world. Books that sort of explore the human condition, I'm really into those. And then as I get older, I'm, I'm actually a little bit more interested in reading biographies and nonfiction and other people's stories and that kind of thing, which I didn't read too much when I was younger. But now uh, something about being a little bit older makes me want to understand other people's lives um, and and what they've gone through and also like understand things like physics, reading authors like Brian Greene about like how the universe works, all that stuff. I'm, I'm into that these days too. That's funny because I have found as I've gotten older, I'm more interested in memoirs and nonfiction where I think maybe when I was younger, I was just so self-absorbed. I didn't really 
<laughs> yeah. Who else has I didn't a life? Care. I didn't care about other people's lives that much. I mean, that sounds really awful, but you know what I'm, hopefully yeah. you know what I'm saying. And then you're right. Like as I turned 50 and you know, there's that, that joke that like, as soon as you turn 50, suddenly you're interested in birds. Like uh-huh. you have bird feeders, you have all kinds yeah. of things. And like that happened to my husband and I over COVID. We're suddenly interested in birds and, and the lives of birds. And I mean, in my 20s, I couldn't care less about a bird. I mean, you know, it was pretty, but I mean, I didn't really, I didn't think too much past the fact that, you know, oh, it's that's bird. a pretty bird. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it completely. I think for me, part of it is like, I now understand how hard life is. I thought when I was in the 20s, it's going to be an adventure. Live fast, die young, whatever. And now I'm like, God, it's so complicated. We're trying to raise kids. It's complicated. And trying to run a business is complicated. And and it's hard. And I have more appreciation for other people's struggles and wanting to understand them and how they made it through. And also like nature, definitely going into the garden, checking out like what's growing and how it grows and birds and insects and wildlife and all that stuff. Like suddenly I want to contemplate it because I like, I have a great appreciation for it. And I think there's something about, yeah, hitting midlife and feeling like we're all surviving this thing. Whereas in my twenties, it's more like I'm trying to have a party and have an adventure. Yeah. Well, we are going to take a short break here. When we come back, we are all going to be talking about what we've been reading lately. Okay, we are back with Andy Hunter from bookshop.org and with Carrie Carrie, you have been sick and been reading a lot. I want to know what you've been reading. Well, this book I finished before I got sick. It's an audiobook called Is It Hot in Here or Am I Suffering for All Eternity for the Sins I Committed on Earth? Doesn't that sound like me? That sounds like something <laughs> I like. That is a very uh, long title. Very <laughs> long title. It's by Zach Zimmerman. And so he wrote it and he narrates it. He is a comedian, so the book is funny, but it's also kind of painful and poignant. It's a collection of essays and lists. So titles like, I love this one especially, Too Much Cheese. I love that title. And uh, here's another one, Seven New Sins and Tortures, too. So Zimmerman talks about being a gay man and about growing up in a conservative household that accepts sort of his gayness. So he talks a bit about religion and how it affected him. He talks about twinks, which is a word that I had to look up. It's a term to describe a young, skinny-built gay or bisexual man. He has several essays where he mentions twinks. So when we always talk about you know weird stuff we've had to Google or weird to us stuff, that was one of them. So now I know what a twink is. So this is a short audiobook. It's only like three hours. And it provided just enough entertainment and just enough insight into his experience in the LGBTQ community. So if you're looking for a funny but also serious book, I recommend it. It's called Is It Hot in Here or Am I Suffering for All Eternity for the Sins I Committed on Earth by Zach Zimmerman. Very good. I love a good collection of essays, yeah, especially yeah. funny ones. All right. Well, Andy, what have you been, when you're not you know, spending 95% of your time working on bookshop.org, what, what have you been reading? Yeah, I've read two great books recently. I just finished uh, a short story collection called Emergency by Kathleen Alcott. Kathleen Alcott is a novelist who's written three great novels, but I think now she might be discovering that she's also or maybe even more an excellent short story writer. They're kind of like relationship dramas in the vein of writers like Alice Munro or James Salter. So if you like that kind of short story writing, it's really smart and carefully written with lots of layers of meaning going on and real attention to detail and language. And that was an excellent collection. It just came out. Before that, I read a book called The Maniac by Benjamin Labatut, who is a Chilean writer, who wrote a a book last year called When We Cease to Understand the World, which was like my favorite book last year, which was about scientists getting their 
brains around kind of principles of the universe and uh, quantum physics and quantum mechanics and all of that and being driven a little mad by pulling back the curtain on how the universe works. That was a brilliant book. It made me very excited about The Maniac. The Maniac is about um, the father of artificial intelligence, and it also touches on the development of the atomic bomb, which is like really good timing that Oppenheimer right. this huge movie right now because it deals with um, Oppenheimer and all of the people that were working on that project as well. And it's not for the faint of heart. It's a serious book. It's super smart. It's dramatic. It's not hard to read, but the content is a little, you know, dark and challenging and very fearless in the way it explores what I think the author really feels like. This is what's important, like figuring this stuff out and like how people like scientists are driven by a search for truth and also some kind of power and how they interact with with people and change our world. And so the, the Maniac is super interesting. And I don't think it's out yet, but you can pre-order it. It'll be out this fall. Okay, so The Maniac is nonfiction. And the first book you talked about were short stories. And there was one in the middle that was a novel. Is that correct? Um, no, the first book was short stories by a person who used to be a novelist. So oh, oh, okay, sorry. Emergency by Kathleen Alcott. The Maniac is actually fiction because... He takes all real world events and all real world characters, but then he imagines their inner lives, basically. Ah. So it is technically fiction, even though the stuff in the book generally were real things that happened. Okay. Interesting. About every two years, I like to read a book that makes me feel really, really stupid. And and then I'm like, okay, I feel plenty dumb now. And then... (laughs) I need to take a break and feel smart again. And so sounds like that might be the book that would, or maybe the, the nonfiction book you mentioned prior to that. Um, when, when we, when we cease to understand the world, that yes. was also, that's also the same kind of fiction as the maniac. Oh, okay. It's okay. All real people. Huh. And it's things that really happened. Um, wow. But he imagines their inner lives and makes them super interesting and really very real and, poignant and human um, in a way that he couldn't if he was just like writing a biography or writing nonfiction because you're in these people's heads. Very cool. I'll have to check those out. Well, Amy, what have you been up to with your reading life? Well, traveling. Yeah. Our family just returned from a trip to Oregon and we were flying back from Portland the other day. And my husband had recommended this book to me that he had just finished. And it's funny because sometimes when he recommends books to me, I kind of ignore him. I don't know why. Usually he knows what I would like, but it's sort of like a don't tell me what to read kind of thing. Anyway, but I took his advice on this one. I picked it up. It's called Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher. And I tore through this. It was a really good way to spend some time on an airplane. It's a light fantasy. It's really like a fairy tale about a young woman named Mara, who is the youngest princess of a very small kingdom. And she has two older sisters who have been married off to this prince in the north for political reasons. And he turns out to be a pretty evil guy. uh, And he's just using Mara's sisters to bear male children. And so... Mara herself has never really been fond of being a princess, so she's grateful when she is sent off to a convent. But when Mara finds out that the prince has been treating her sisters poorly, she goes off to find someone to help her do away with the prince. And in the process, she collects herself a very motley crew of companions. There's a witch that can talk to the dead, a dog made out of bones, a fairy godmother who likes chickens, and a knight who had been captured by goblins. Oh, and I forgot. There's also this little brown hen who's inhabited by a demon. So (laughs) this group is on a quest to save Mara's sister. But this tale has lots of feminist overtones in it. The women have the most power, but not in a way that you would think. And it turns the idea of the glamour of being a princess on its head. You know, so lots of little girls dream of being a princess. But in this story, and and, and in fact, in my opinion, many times in real life, the life of a princess is that you never are really your own person and other people control you. 
I really love this book, although in some ways it is a classic fairy tale. Kingfisher puts so many unique spins on it. It's just really, really imaginative. And how could I not love a book that has a dog, especially a friendly one that's made out of bones? Uh, he doesn't even realize he's dead. He's a cute little thing. Uh, it's great. I gave this one five stars and I have read one other book by T. Kingfisher. Uh, I read The Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking. I really like that one too, because in that one, it's it's more of a YA, but there's a young woman who has a little bit of magic and it all has to do with baking and she makes this like magical sourdough starter. Anyway, that one's a little crazy, but I loved it too. So this author is now a must read author for me. Again, the name of this book is Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher. And I forgot to mention it's been nominated for a Hugo Award this year, a Nebula Award, and a Goodreads Reader's Choice Award. So it's a good one. And you've got another T. Kingfisher coming your way, but I'm going to talk about it on the show. Oh, did you have a you have a physical copy you're giving? Me? Yes, yes. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. What moves the dead? But I'm I'm take I'm calling dibs on that one. Okay. To discuss. So okay. Anyway. All right. Well, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to do our Fast and Furious with Andy Hunter, CEO of Bookshop.org. But before that. Book lover Lainey from Orlando, Florida is going to tell us about her latest five-star read. Hi, I'm Lainey, and I live in the super hot and humid Orlando. You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube under the name Zany Lainey. I'm so excited to talk about one of my more recent favorite five-star reads. It's The Wishing Game by Meg Schaefer. This book is truly magical, and I think it would be the perfect holiday read also. It's the story about an author who lives on this island, and he has a competition for all of the kids who are now grown-ups who have run away to find him at some point in their life. So he will grant the winner their greatest wish. So I really loved the characters in this book and the description of the island itself. And I literally cannot wait to read this one again. We are back with Andy Hunter, CEO of bookshop.org. And we're going to do the Fast and Furious with Andy. So Andy, sweet or salty? What's your favorite? Sweet or salty things? Salty. Salty. Do you have a favorite? Like if like a snack that your go to like if you're craving something salty. Oh man! Well, since my since I have kids, like my snacking has gotten like much much low, more lowbrow. Like now it's Cheetos, Pringles. <laughs> like if you'd asked me that five years ago, I would have been like, "Oh, goat cheese on a baguette." <laughs> we Very we good. understand. Yep. Okay, photography or painting. Uh painting. And one of your favorite artists. Uh, my wife, Allison Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, Ooh, your wife is an artist. Yep, she is. What kind of, what medium does she work in? She she does this thing called that she kind of named marquetry hybrid. She started doing as a painter, but then she started working with wood inlay, and then she mastered the art of marquetry, which is creating these images all out of wood. Use different veneers of wood. Some of her pieces have like over a hundred different species of wood that are all layered together to create these incredible marquetry pieces. And then she had another breakthrough and started painting into the pieces and also collaging other different kinds of materials like mica or photo collage into them. So she's been, she's been at it for about 20 years. She's gotten quite good at it. And she like won the Smithsonian national portrait competition last year. Oh, wow. Does she have a workshop that she like just that she does the woodworking part? Yeah, she does. She has a big studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn, um, ah, where she works. Cool. Barbie or Oppenheimer? Personally, Oppenheimer, but as a family man, dad, I'm looking forward to seeing Barbie with my girls. Okay. I have to say Bar- Barbieheimer. <laughs> I really want to see Oppenheimer. I didn't really want to see Barbie before because I don't think I realized exactly what it was about. It's got like enough of a subversive element that yeah. people who are skeptical of Barbie can enjoy it. And then it's also enough fun I, that um, just like people who love Barbie can see it. So I like Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. So who are the 
co-writers and um, director. Okay, so you are a New York guy. So Coney Island or the Brooklyn Botanic Garden? Coney Island. Really? Okay. Well, I spent a lot of time in the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, actually, because I was across the street from it, and I used to go there to work all the time on my laptop, and I'm a nature person forever. Like, I'm a nature boy, for sure. But Coney Island is, like, classic Americana, like, hot dogs and crazy rides, and it's a very unique place, and I, and I love that kind of thing. Like, I love, like, Sideshow and Roadside America and Americana stuff, so I, I do love Coney Island and the Mermaid Parade and all of the freaks and and weirdos and old school Brooklynites <laughs> that are hanging out there. <laughs> well, it's been a real treat learning more about Bookshop. Like I said, we, we knew about it, but but we appreciate you taking time out of your morning to tell us more and and we want to help spread the word about bookshop.org. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great. You can find Bookshop. Their website is www.bookshop.org. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabooklover.pod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.